God's word in Romans 5, starting at verse 1, and going through verse 11. It says, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved by him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can take your seats. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You've been gracious and good to give it to us, instructing us, informing us, calling us, saving us, sanctifying us. God, all of the things that your word does, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for the particular information that Romans 5 holds. The fact that we were an ungodly, sinful people, enemies of yours, but because of love, you sent Christ to die for us. We rejoice in him being an atoning sacrifice today. We rejoice that we don't have to wonder whether or not our salvation has been accomplished, but we can rest knowing that it has. because we're reconciled to you through our Lord Christ. And Father, we thank you that you took your love and by your spirit poured it into our hearts. How radical is this, Father? That you who is the origin of love, that, that you who've existed in, in, in perfect harmony within yourself and has been loving since eternity past, you saw fit to share that with us. You've given the grace of us receiving your love and now being empowered and made able to reciprocate it, to multiply it and, and, and demonstrate it and show it to other people and to continue to, to see more and more of it as we live this life, learning more and more of who you are. Father, we just say thanks today. That in spite of us being undeserving, you consider us a beloved people. And Father, I pray and ask that as I seek to preach toward the end of our rejoicing in that, as I seek to preach toward the end of of us doing what Paul calls us to do in this passage, rejoicing at the love that has been shown in Christ. God, I need your help. I need your empowerment. Your word tells us that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. So I admit that I am a weak man, attempting to communicate your word to your people on your behalf. So I pray that you make your strength clear today, Father. 
Would you give me clarity in my thoughts, clarity in my speech? A dependence upon you as I preach, a joyful posture of worship as I preach, and invite my brothers and sisters in the room to worship you also. If I pray and ask that, if there be anybody in the room who's not already a worshiper of yours, that that would change today. Might they see the love that's spoken of here in Romans 5 and be overwhelmed by it. Desire it for themselves and repent of their sin and respond to you and your great love with faith and the fact that you are who you say you are. You've done what you said you would do and your love has been proven. We can see and know in Christ. So we thank you for him. I pray and ask that you give me the grace that's needed to preach for his glory this morning. As Father, for your glory, with dependence upon your spirit and in the name of your son that I both pray and preach. Amen. Well, I'm going to start this sermon by giving some of you a pretty courteous reminder. <laughs> you got about 13 days left to go ahead and keep shopping for those gifts that you haven't bought just yet. <laughs> if you're like me, then that reminder might have just made you a little stressed. You might even feel tempted to get up and go leave early so that you can get the shopping done now. Don't do that. It's much more important that you be here. And it's somewhat of a confession on my part with regard to gift buying at the holidays. One of the great blessings in being married to my wife is that she does most of the thinking when it comes to buying people Christmas gifts. I give input when she asks for it here and there, but for the most part, I found out what we have bought people at the same time as them finding out when we sit there with them and they open it. It usually goes something like our families opening their gifts when we're visiting them for Christmas and, and they usually respond by saying something like, thank you, I love it. And I simply respond by smiling and saying, you're welcome, I knew you would. <laughs> I'm so glad you do. But inside, I'm hoping that they don't ask me how it is that I knew they would, because then I have to tell them, well, I knew that you would because of my trust in Lauren, not because of anything that I contributed to the process of, of searching for the gift. So I get to show up on Christmas Day and boast an appearance of having arrived with many gifts to give, when deep down inside, I know that Lauren did most of the work to arrive with the gifts. But that's somewhat okay. You know why? Because Christmas isn't actually about the gifts that we give. It's about the gifts that we've been given by Jesus. See, some of y'all might've been sitting there judging me. It's like, oh, he didn't even shop for Christmas gifts. There's a little Jesus juke for you. It's not about the gifts we give. It's about the gifts that Jesus Christ has given us. Uh, we're currently in this Advent sermon series. And the word Advent is just another word for arrival. And the reason we take time around this part of the year to celebrate Advent it's because we're giving intentional time to think about all that Jesus Christ brings us in his arrival. Over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Russ has preached about the hope and the peace that Jesus brings. And this week, I'm going to focus on the love that Jesus brings. Uh, today's passage honestly shows us all of the gifts that he brings, though. Like in the, in the first few verses, Paul talks about how we're justified or, or made or declared righteous by faith in Christ. And he says that as a byproduct of our justification, we get the gifts of peace with God, we, we, we've obtained access into the grace of God. We, we find reason for rejoicing with hope in the glory of God. We're given reason for rejoicing even in our afflictions due to our hope in God. And we have reassurance that this hope is valid because of the love of God. 
And we could spend the next six months to a year of our Sundays together looking at just those phrases. Like we could consider each of these byproducts, each of these, these gifts that we've been given and still have meat left on the bone to chew in the end. But that's not my aim for today's sermon. What I want us to focus on in particular is how Jesus brings the love of God. And as we prepare to look at it, I do want you to make note of these two foundational phrases that are at the beginning of the passage. At the end of verse one, we see these through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the middle of verse two, we see the phrase through him by faith. Those two phrases, friends, are foundational because they cue us into the fact that everything Paul mentions in this passage has been offered to us in the particular way of God sending Jesus as the one who would make it possible for us to experience them. This is why we celebrate Advent. Because Jesus has arrived among his people with many good gifts to give. And unlike me, Jesus knows what good gifts he's bringing to the table. So let's look at this gift of love. And first, how love is poured out. I want to look at how Jesus' love is poured out. And talking about this this love of God that Christ brings, Paul initially mentions it as a, a source of reassurance for one of the other gifts that Jesus brought us. He says that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts, verse five. But the reason Paul even mentions that is to make the point that the pouring of God's love should serve to reassure us that the hope we have is a valid hope. So Jesus brought hope, and it's good that we got it, it's a gift, but he also brought love, and this love that has been brought from the Lord reassures that our hope is valid. Paul says this hope we have won't disappoint us. That word for disappoint carries with it a connotation for humiliating or, or, or putting someone to shame. Uh, So what hope is it that Paul says won't leave us ashamed and disappointed and humiliated? It's the hope that he mentioned back up in verse two, hope of the glory of God. It's the hope of one day seeing all of God's glory, all of, of his majesty and holiness and worth and power and godness on full display, which will then free us from our temptations to do anything other than worship that glorious God. Romans 3.23 tells us that as of now, we fall short of the glory of God. Second Corinthians 3.18 tells us that though we've seen some of God's glory, we're still going from one degree of that glory to the next degree of glory. So we're still in the process of, of getting to know the glory of God. Romans 8.18 says that there's a future glory to be revealed to us. And then in John 17, Jesus himself prayed that his people would be able to see this glory once they were in heaven with him. So there seems to be this concept, friends, throughout the whole New Testament that's stored up for the people of God to see and and fully relish in at a later date is the full glory of God. But for now, Paul says here in verse 2, the people wait with hope for that glory to later come. And it's this hope that Paul says won't leave us disappointed and ashamed. Now, why does Paul feel the need to tell us that it won't leave us disappointed and ashamed? Well, I think it's because Paul knew that as long as God's people were reading this letter during their earthly lives, there would be a constant temptation to doubt our hope in God and to question our hope in heaven and to to reconsider whether this hope is a valid hope at all. This is why right after he mentions this, Paul gets into verses three and four and he starts to talk about suffering and affliction. Because this earthly life that we live is filled with suffering and affliction and trials that will tempt us to lay our hopes down. It's commonly been said that with this earthly life, you're either suffering, coming out of suffering, or getting ready to head into some kind of suffering. And listen, I, I, don't, I don't want to be naive this morning. See, I know that this holiday season isn't all joy for all of us. 
Some of you are, are going through things right now that, that leave you with this strange mixture of, of joy about the fact that a Savior has come, yet heartache about some of the remaining remnants from the fact that sin has also come. Some of you have gone through things that have left you with a mix of, of celebration in this season where we remember the coming of Christ, yet mourning because this season also brings up memories that aren't so sweet. Some of you, you've got worries about whether you're in a financial position to, to make this season all that you hope for it to be for your loved ones. Some of you may just wish that your loved ones were here to celebrate with you. You need to hear me, beloved. What Paul shows us here is that this is why we not only celebrate the first advent of Jesus when he came to show us how he'd free us from these things, but it's also why we anticipate the second advent of Jesus when he'll come back to finally free and rescue us and take us to heaven with him. So let me say this, the glory of God that awaits you in heaven will free you from all of these earthly pains. And your hope of one day seeing that glory will not leave you disappointed and ashamed. How do we know this? Because Paul tells us this hope will not disappoint. Why won't the hope disappoint? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, this finally brings us to our focus for this morning. It brings us to the Advent theme of love. This this particular statement is showing us that the love of God provides reassurance and confidence for our hope in God. And I personally think that the love of God is, is a foundational reassurance of everything that Jesus offers. It's like it was, it was the, the, the love of God that led him to create us in the first place. And then the love of God that led him to send Jesus to save us once we messed things up. So different sermons for different days. But what Paul undoubtedly makes clear here is that we can look to the love of God as reassurance for the hope that we have in him. And thankfully, Paul makes it clear that we don't have to look very far in order to see this love. Because God has poured it into a place that is very near and dear to us. The verse tells us that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I think it's worth pausing to state the obvious, friends. This is a fascinating sentence. As the entire world seeks to know and experience and find love, God's word tells us here that love has found us as the people of God. It says he poured out his love on us. There's so much to appreciate about this, right? Like God has liberally, generally expressed, generously expressed toward us the highest kind of affection that could ever be expressed. Like I'm sure you've probably heard people talk about how the Bible has four different words for love. Like we know the, the, the single English word love, the Bible has four words that, that talks about different kinds of love. Well, the one that's here in verse five is the best kind, friends. Paul is telling us here that God has poured out into the hearts of his people an unconditional, selfish, sacrificial, redemptive, pure, regenerating, salvific, incomparable, immeasurable, all-surpassing kind of love. And do you realize the implication of God pouring it out? I think the scripture scripture shows just how generous God is as he offers his love. I mean, imagine you go to a restaurant one day. Like you're there to enjoy your meal. You've heard good reviews about this place. So so you're expecting a typical experience of quality customer service. So you put your order in, your entrees being cooked. You can hear the chef in the kitchen banging pots and pans. You can can smell the aroma coming out of the kitchen. They put some of those yeast rolls on the table. So so you start munching on those. Like this is a, this is a great experience thus far. They brought out a cold glass of iced tea, hopefully sweet tea. If it's unsweet tea, let me know. And I'd love to pray with you before you leave, but hopefully it is, it is sweet tea that you're drinking. 
But I mean, imagine you're sitting in this fine restaurant and you're having this fine experience. Everything is going great. You know what would ruin your experience? Let's say you run out of sweet tea and you want to, you want to refill. If it's unsweet tea, you shouldn't want to, you shouldn't want to refill. So just, just leave that where it is. But you run out of sweet tea and you want to refill. So your waitress walks by and, and, and you ask for a refill. Imagine them walking over to your table with a medicine dropper. And they take this medicine dropper that's got a little sweet tea in it and they just, they just, they just drip a few drops into your cup. Or maybe it's, it's a little better than that. Imagine them walking over with a bowl and, 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 they, and they dip their hands into the bowl and they, they, they sprinkle a little tea into your cup. That'd be a terrible experience, right? Like, what would you do in that situation? I know what you would not do. You wouldn't leave a good tip. (laughs) Nobody wants a stingy waiter. Hear me out, Pioneer Church. When it comes to waiting on us with his love, God has not been a stingy waiter. He doesn't drip his love. He doesn't sprinkle it into our hearts. He's a God who pours love out. His love isn't withheld. It is freely, liberally, generously given and expressed. Verse 5 tells us that he poured it into our hearts. And now that is also significant, right? Like Paul tells us that the heart is a specific container in which God pours his love. And what a destination that is, right? Like this bears many implications for those of us who know this love. The first implication is that, that the heart is a, of, of the heart being a storage place is, is, is that it is a storage place, right? Like, like, He hasn't just poured his love over us so that it drips off into the ground. He's poured his love into a container so that it can be contained and experienced over and over again. The fact that we contain God's love in us means that we get to live with this ongoing experience of what God's love has done to us. God's love isn't something that we experience once and then forget. No, we continue to, to see it impact our lives because it is contained in our hearts. The second implication of the heart being the container for God's love, is that God's love is experienced in a personal way. Our heart is something that every individual has. When the Bible speaks about the heart of a person, it's talking about uh, the, the core part of their being. It's talking about the central part of who they are. It's not talking about the, the, the physical heart that beats to put, to put blood into your body so that you can just stay alive. It's talking about the spiritual heart that beats to give you passions and feelings and meaning to the life that you do live. This is something that every individual has. It's, the heart is, is personal to every single person. It gives each individual person the ability to, to feel and be and experience. And God says that he has poured his love into that container. And so we, friends, get to feel the Lord's love in personal ways. Another implication of the heart as a storage place is that God's love can be reproduced and multiplied within us. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 tells us that we should guard our hearts above all else. Why? Because it is the source of life. So like I said a minute ago, the Bible understands the heart to be the thing that is the central source of life. We live from our hearts. So if our physical heart stops working, we die physically. If our, if our spiritual heart stops working, we die spiritually. So being that the heart is understood as the central place of life, it must be active in producing and sustaining things that carry one's life forward. And so what I'm getting at with this is that when God's love gets into the container that produces, sustains, source to life, 
that container will then replicate and portray and multiply God's love. So God's love should become an active part of the life that is being lived. And so this for you, Christian, calls you to a life of reflecting God's love, of being an extension of God's love to the world around you. Like you can't claim to have God's love in your heart if you fail to replicate God's love with your life. So may the love of God so fill your heart that it multiplies and runs over onto those around you. Paul says it's into the heart that God has poured his love. And did you notice the means by which this love is poured into our hearts? He says it has been poured out through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That too is greatly significant as we think about God's love. So this is showing us that the love of God has been delivered to its destination by way of a supernatural spiritual delivery system. And his Holy Spirit has been, he's the one who has acted as the supernatural delivery boy. Like I'm sure this is the time of year where many of us are, are freshly aware of the importance of delivery people. Like everybody's ordering stuff online. There's these, these Amazon and, and UPS and FedEx trucks all over the place. And when we order a package, we expect it to arrive at its destination in the time and manner in which we were told it would. Well, you know that doesn't always happen. Our delivery people miss sometimes. I've ordered two packages in the last month that have yet to be delivered. One of them is supposedly stuck in Iowa somewhere. I'm not sure why they sent my package to Iowa in the first place. The other one was apparently delivered, but it was delivered to the wrong address. So somebody got a nice pair of, of, a nice pair of dress shoes as an early Christmas present. If it's you and you're in the room, please return my shoes to me. They're not yours. They had my name on them. I would love to, to have my shoes. But all of this happens because the FedEx drivers and the system that they operate by, at the end of the day, it's an imperfect system. But when the Holy Spirit is on delivery duty, friends, we don't ever have to worry about a package not arriving. So he's the kind of delivery boy that, that we don't have to buy package insurance with. God, the Holy Spirit, always fulfills his assignments, including the one that is mentioned in this verse. So God's love has been poured out into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit is the one who got it there. So we can rest assured that God's love is in the right place. And I hear what I'm about to say next. We can't be in agreement with the statement I just made about the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love into our hearts and then go on to live as if there's nothing spiritual about this faith that we've been saved into. You see, I worry that in today's technologically advanced, uh, intellectually adept society, I, I, I worry that we might often be tempted to explain away the spiritual nature of our salvation. Like you may even be a, a non-Christian here today who, who hesitates to embrace the truth of the Bible because you feel like everything needs to make sense according to natural logic. Well, let me be upfront with you. The supernatural doesn't make sense according to natural logic. And what God says through the Apostle Paul in this verse is that there's a supernatural thing that has happened when he pours his love into the hearts of his people. Like people tend to want a more logical explanation for Christianity. That is the explanation. The supernatural God of the universe supernaturally saves a people with supernatural love that supernaturally makes them new from the inside out when it is supernaturally experienced. We serve a supernatural God who can't be fully explained and understood according to human logic. And I'm glad about that. <laughs> like what kind of God would God be if we could reduce him to fit into our small human minds? He's a supernatural God who does supernatural stuff, part of which has been him pouring his love into the hearts of his people. And if you look down to verse six, you see another supernatural thing that God has done. We've already considered that God's love was supernaturally poured out. 
Well, in the next set of verses, Paul tells us that God's love was also supernaturally proven. The verses say, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These verses remind us that that one of the primary ways we can look to God's love in order to be reassured in our hope is by considering the proof. We want to consider the greatest expression of God's love that has ever been shown. We want to consider the fact that God sent Christ to save us when we didn't deserve to be saved. There's a reason so many people have taken John 3.16 and put it on coffee mugs, right? So for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And nobody has to work very hard to see how radical God's love. His love is so radical that it led him to give up his son to save sinners. I mean, Paul makes it clear. We were helpless, lost in our sin. We were an ungodly people, and yet Christ died on our behalf. Only radical love does that, friends. Paul says in verse 7 that it will likely never happen that someone would die for a just person. And even for a good person, it's still rare if it ever happens. Uh, the difference between good and just here is that a just person is seen as, as morally upright and, and they keep the laws and, and they follow the rules. And a good person is someone who not only does all of that stuff, but they also have a, a kind of warmth and affection to them. So they're even better than the just person. But neither of those groups, according to this verse, are likely to see someone give up their life for them. But God, Paul says, his love is so radical that he sent Christ to die in our place and bear the punishment for our sin while we were still sinners. So we weren't classified as just nor good. We were classified as sinners, but Jesus gave up his life for us. And I think that that while we're here, it's, it's probably worth pointing out that this shows us that love doesn't have to approve or affirm all things. God loved us so much that he didn't leave us as we were. He dealt with the thing that we were plagued by. He dealt with sin. And it's because that's what true love does. It loves you enough to seek out your best by making it known when things are wrong, not by trying to classify wrong wrong things as right things. It's another sermon for another day. But Jesus' death, if Jesus' death doesn't offer proof of love, then I don't know what proof can be offered. Paul says God proved his own love for us in this way. These two words, his own, that, that, that gives an emphatic indication that there was a deliberate, willful choice by God. It wasn't an indifferent, passive allowance of God. He didn't sit back and watch as all of this took place. God's word tells us that he gave Christ up. He sent Christ to die. He made him into sin for sinners. He offered him as a sacrifice. So God chose to do all of these things because of his love for you, and he did it while you were still an enemy of his. That is radical. You won't find love anywhere else. Only God can initiate this kind of love. Look at verse 10 real quick. It says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And so the love of God isn't just radical love for unrighteous people who do bad things, but for God to love people like that is actually enemy love. (laughs) You're an enemy of God's and he chose to love you. He showed his love to us while we were enemies. He didn't wait for a better future version of us to save. He loved us to the point of salvation when we were at our worst friends. That's the God we have. That's the love that he shows us. So let this be of encouragement to you today. If you're in here this morning and and you're thinking that this sermon doesn't apply to you because because you're still not good enough for God to love you. Listen, God didn't wait to show love to sinners. So sinners don't have to wait to respond to the love of God. 
If you've been sitting there and, and, and hearing about this love that's been offered through Jesus and you desire to know it for the rest of your life, then I plead with you today. Repent of your sin and take up faith that you can be loved by God because Jesus, who lived in perfect love with him since eternity passed, he offers to take your identity as an unlovable sinner and give you his as a lovable child. So any sin, friend, that would make you unlovable has been dealt with by the beloved son. And you can know the love of God today because of that. So proven love, Paul says. Proof of the love of God is what Jesus brought when he came to earth. And so this is why we celebrate Advent. Because when Jesus arrived, he arrived as proof that God is indeed a loving God. And we also celebrate because there's the promise of a second arrival. And it's going to bring even more proof. God's love continues to be demonstrated and the proof will go on. Paul says in verses 9 through 10, How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So friends, Paul, in essence here, he's laying out the fact that the proof of God's love isn't only seen through the death of Jesus, but it continues to be proven by the domino effect that the death of Jesus gives start to. His death was one proof of God's love. But after his death, there was his resurrection. And from resurrection comes a second life. And it's Jesus' second resurrected life that has paved the way for us to also have a resurrected second life of our own. And that spares us from eternal death and hell under the wrath of God. We've been promised that we will rise from the grave as our Savior did and be spared wrath and hell. So God's love forever continues to do what God's love does, which is to save God's people from eternal damnation and to save God's people to eternal glorification. That's what we're awaiting, right? Like you go back to verse two, when, when it talks about this thing that we're awaiting and hoping in, we want to see the full glory of God, which will make us people who are fully glorified alongside him. And it's his love that will one day allow it to happen. And so we need to, we need to do what verse 11 tells us to do. We need to rejoice at the fact that God loved us enough to give us his re- reconciliation. And so let this Advent season be marked as a season in which you do just that, friend. Rejoice in the love of God. Rejoice that Christ has brought a love from God that is a love sufficient enough to save you and rejoice that Christ is coming back in the love of God to one day let you see this love from heaven. God loves you. So he poured his love into your heart and he proved it by sending his son on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, we relish in your love this morning. As we've heard time and time again throughout this gathering, we know that there is nothing like it. Nothing else redeems and restores like your love. Nothing removes scales from eyes like your love. Nothing grants hope and then reassures hope like your love. So we thank you for the fact that you have chosen willfully, deliberately to love us in the radical way that you do. I pray that our hearts would indeed rejoice in this today. And I pray that our rejoicing would be contagious. Might more people come to know you this Advent season because of your people rejoicing in the fact that our Savior brought us your love. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen.